So, Mark. Yes. I've been thinking a lot about blockbusters. That doesn't surprise me. Well, yes, we are deep in podcast summer. That's not really true, but we're a little bit into hashtag podcast summer, right? Yeah. So we're spreading the word about the show, telling new people, getting them to actually listen. But also, it's like summer movies. Is this a real, like, hashtag, or is this something you made up? I made it up. We're making it a thing. Okay. This is our thing. Hashtag podcast summer. Sounds good. Do you thought this was a real thing? I don't know. It feels like something that someone would set up. Does it not? I mean, it does. I set it up. I'm the someone. You're not someone. You're not someone until you have a blue check mark next to your name, William. Uh, working on it. Working on it. <laughs> Someday. So far, there are no fraud Will Redmond accounts, to my knowledge. So that's something. Nobody else is <laughs> pretending to be me. There's no at we- at real Will no- Redmond. <laughs> real real Redmond. <laughs> At real Will Redmond. Anyway, I was thinking about that in terms of watching Raiders of the Lost Ark because I have long held that Back to the Future, subject of our future two-hour episode, is the perfect blockbuster movie. You say our future two-hour episode, but I think you mean your future two-hour episode because I will leave after the first hour. It's me and Mr. Lepp for the second hour. Perfect. So I've long held that Back to the Future is the perfect blockbuster, and I went into Raiders excited because I was kind of hoping that it would displace Back to the Future. Not that I want it to be displaced, but that would be exciting. And I came away, I still think it's Back to the Future, but I was wondering what you thought about perfect blockbusters. Um, I don't really think about the idea of perfect blockbusters as much as you, I will admit, so my thoughts may be less coherent. Because I do think of you sitting in class, just stroking your chin, thinking, hmm, blockbusters. That's what worksheets are for. (laughs) Um, I think this is a really good one because it's got all of the things you need. It is List all of the things that you need. Action-y... It's got costumes, mostly in a very attractive man in the lead. That's the main thing. You know, I mean, blockbusters are mostly just fun, yeah. I feel. And this movie is definitely fun. And this is fun. That is the goal, I feel. One of the things that I learned when I was working on this episode was that when they were putting it together, Lucas and Spielberg and Lawrence Kasdan, who wrote the script, sat in an office for a week and just brainstormed ideas. And a good chunk of what they were doing was just like bouncing off ideas for different things that could happen. And so they were just coming up with tons of cool adventure set pieces. And the whole transcript for this session between the three of them is available. You can read it and you can parse through it and see it's like how pages. on fire Lucas and Spielberg and Kasdan too, who's taking notes through the whole thing pretty much. But especially Lucas, how many great ideas as he had for this movie that came through. Spielberg had some weird ones that were put into the lesser sequels, but for the most part, this character in particular was Lucas's baby. He did have one really bad idea that kind of came through in the final product that I, I suspect we will talk about later because it forms the core of the romance between... Was Indiana the bad idea to name him Indiana Smith in the original version? That's his second worst idea in the original version. The first was the age gap between Indy and Marion, but we'll get to that later. Oh, we'll definitely sure. talk about that. Oh, yes. for sure. That was Mr. Lepp, by the way. So... Mr. Lepp, do you have a perfect blockbuster that you think we should uh, cite in this discussion? I do have a perfect blockbuster. Is it Back to the Future? No, it's Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm. So, okay, you can make your case a little bit. I can. Uh, Childhood love is the first thing that comes to mind. But I really think Mark tried to hit the nail on the head and might have missed and bent it slightly uh, while aiming for it. But the movie has everything that I look for in a summer movie, and it does it all very well, and it doesn't have a lot of excess on it. There's not a lot of fat on this movie that you can trim off. The script is written to include every detail you need to know, but there's a lot that you can unpack when you come back to revisit it about these characters, specifically because there's so much in their past, especially Indy and Marion's past, uh, and Indy's past with Belloc, the villain that's left uh, open for you to guess what might have happened among all of them. 
it has great action scenes. It has a, a great spirit of adventure. It's the pure distillation of an action adventure movie that I don't think has ever really been topped by any of the numerous imitators that have come since. And it has great performances, nothing of the caliber of like an Oscar-worthy performance, but everything serves its function very well in this movie. Uh, and that's why I think, to me, it is something that I always enjoy revisiting and something that I always catch new little details that Spielberg or the production design, costume designer, whoever, threw into the background um, that I can pick up on whenever I go back and rewatch it. But how many times do they play Power of Love by Huey Lewis in the news? Exactly zero. Which is a huge mistake. It is a glaring omission. You know how many times they play that song in Back to the Future? It's like over a dozen. Like five. <laughs> <laughs> so this is our 26th episode. It's 27. 27. Well, yeah. And I believe Will has referenced Huey Lewis and the news as Power of Love being in Back to the Future five times in, I would say, half of these episodes. Because it's a great song. I think we do need to do this episode that's two hours long just so you get it out of your system and you stop mentioning it every episode. It's gonna be great. Oh my god. Is Huey Lewis doing like a black voice in that song? I don't know it well enough to comment on that, but I hope not. (laughs) I haven't seen Back to the Future. I've never heard him, well no, you do hear him speak in Back to the Future and he doesn't sound like his singing voice. I haven't seen Back to the Future in many years. I didn't know there was gonna be a follow-up to that first phrase. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, but I definitely was not old enough to understand the concept of like doing a black voice, so I cannot comment. Still a great song. Okay, we're basically doing the episode anyway, so why don't we just start this? Mark, get us going. Okay, well, it's time for Heart of Podness. I'm Mark and I'm Gay. And I'm Will and I'm a Ginger. This is a podcast where we delve deep into cinematic love stories to answer the age-old question. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable? Or are they even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or if it's a one-scene flirtation. We'll dig in and see what's there. And today, like I said, we are diving deep into hashtag podcast summer with one of the great summer movies of all time. And as you heard earlier, we've got a guest here to help us through it. Hi. So why don't you tell us who you are and what movie are we talking about? (laughs) We're talking about, (laughs) once again, Raiders of the Lost Ark from 1981. My name is Matt. I am not Mr. Lepp, who is here with us. I'm here because this is my favorite movie of all time. One that I've seen far too many times to even possibly get any enjoyment out of it, but I still do. And as I said, this is the first film in the Indiana Jones series starring Harrison Ford, Karen Allen, and Paul Freeman. First of five. First of soon to be five, because at this moment, as Will reminded me Actually, the other it's day... Ne- it's next year. I was off. Is it next year? Yeah. All right, well, he had me thinking that Indiana Jones 5 was filming at this time. But next year, a 77, 76-year-old Harrison <laughs> like Ford will, will strap on the bullwhip and the, the hat one last time uh, to become the iconic character introduced in this film. Here's the funniest thing about the future of Indiana Jones. It's not Indiana Jones 5, it's Indiana Jones 6, because Spielberg has said that Harrison Ford could really only do one more movie, but that Spielberg is down to, like, keep the franchise going with possibly somebody else in the role. And he was Shia LaBeouf. Not Shia LaBeouf, Shia I assume. LaBeouf is not in the next film. But at a recent Q&A, he was asked about the possibility of a female Indiana oh, Jones, going with and Spielberg's yeah. response was... Yeah, I'm not opposed to it, but her name would have to be Indiana Jones. Signifying that he has <laughs> oh, yeah. no idea how last names work whatsoever. <laughs> right, because when you, a woman is from the family Jones, her name is J-O-A-N. Exactly. Unless, has Jones been Indy's first name the whole time and Indiana is a nickname? I don't think so. I think we've established that Indiana is his first name. Henry is his first Henry's name. Henry's his first name, well, but that doesn't come till the third movie. It's yeah. not mentioned in this film at all, no. So if you saw this film in 1981 with no other introduction of the character, you assume that this man's name was Indiana Jones. Which is a great name. And not Indiana Smith. Maybe it's all one word. Maybe his name is just 
Indiana Jones. Like, that's his first name. Speaking of that, it's really interesting to me that, like, we watched this on DVD. We did. The 2003 2003, the original DVD release, yeah. Yeah, and on that, it's labeled as Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. For consistency throughout the three movies at that time. Right. Yes. Which is kind of poopy. Yeah, it's a terrible title to add Indiana Jones. Because Raiders of the Lost Ark is this evocative title. There's so much packed into there. all of them are Raiders of the... Even Indy is a Raider of the Lost Ark, technically. If you haven't seen the movie, it doesn't really mean anything to you, but it sounds really cool. It does. And Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark is still kind of cool. It's got that serial pulp hero aspect to it, but it's lost some of the elegance. It's like an inelegant title, like Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Hard to say, and you'd never say the full thing anyway, so... Just call it Crystal Skull. That's fair. Like Raiders is just Raiders. Mark, when did you first see this movie? Um, So I think probably in 2003, because my parents bought the DVDs, and I watched it pretty soon after that. Probably not exactly 2003, because I was too young to really enjoy it, but I remember getting the box set of the DVDs very early. I got it in 2008, right before Crystal Skull. Was that the first time you saw the movie? It was. I did not grow up on these movies. Same with me. I was 14. For the same reason, I got caught up in the Crystal Skull fever at that time. Woo! <laughs> you know the famous crystal skull fever that Catch the swept fever. the nation. The treasure is knowledge. And uh, yeah, that was the first time I saw this film. I've seen it many times in the ten years. Yeah, this movie rules. It does rule. I mean, you said it brilliantly in the first section. Like this movie is just a lot of fun. It's an adventure serial. That's what they were going for, and they succeeded with interesting and engaging characters that are at the very least engaging enough to string you along for two hours. Yeah, it really doesn't feel two hours. No, it doesn't. Like, there's a lot of movies that feel two hours. I think part of that is the kind of episodic nature of the movie. Yeah. You hang out in one place, do a little adventure there, and then you move on to a new place, do a little adventure there, in the way you could chop it up like, like a, a Saturday serial. Yeah. Right. And, like, every time I watch it, I feel like I forget one of the adventures, where this time it was kind of just like, oh, I forgot they were on a boat. And just, like... <laughs> I always forget about the boat sequence. Yeah, like, there's just some episodes that are, you know, don't stick out as much, but I think also you kind of forget they're on a boat, because they don't want to show it being a boat, because that's probably more expensive than a cabin. And it's also just paced and edited extraordinarily well. This team that came to this movie came to all the other indie movies, uh, with the exception of Crystal Skull, but most of them worked with Spielberg on numerous other projects throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s. I mean, the editor is Michael Kahn. He won an Oscar for it. Yeah, uh, and I think the film just flows for the first two-thirds of it really well, then it gives you a brief break on the boat before you come and you kind of get a breather just like Indy and Marion get a breather at this point because they've been to hell and back with his arc and then you get to enjoy the last 10 or 15 minutes of the arc being opened and the Nazis all dying. I mean, it's like a weird kind of property since... It's the kind of thing that sounds like something you should be familiar with, but is totally new. But it's kind of wild to think that like all these major studios rejected it when Spielberg and Lucas, post-Jaws, Close Encounters, and Star Wars, were shopping it around, and everyone was like, nah. And it took them a while to get Paramount on board. Part of the context there is that Spielberg had just made... He made 1941. 1941, which was a huge flop. It wasn't really, though. It did fine, but it was perceived as a big flop because it, it wasn't doing what, Jaws, Close Encounters money. Right, and it wasn't it tripled critically its budget. well-received, though, either, it was it? kind of liked it. So, But it doesn't explain... I mean, Luke Lucas was coming right off of this is Star, right Wars after Star Wars and American Graffiti at this time. Yeah. So, and with, you know, Empire, at the time, wouldn't have been released, but I, I don't know. Lucas I, and Kasdan were working on both at the same time. Okay. So, yeah, it, it is shocking to think 
think that this movie was almost passed up. But at the same time, it, it contributed to a revival of this action-adventure serial-type movie with kind of a throwback to... Have like, there been any good ones since this, though? Not really, but in the 80s, there were uh, other attempts at stuff like this that aren't, that aren't really well-watched anymore, like Romancing the Stone, which had, I think, like Danny DeVito was in that one. It had a sequel at the time, too. And then, you know, we, in our generation, saw things like The Mummy come out. Um, oh, yeah. Lara Croft, Tomb Raider. The new Tomb Raider is solid. Which, uh... <laughs> I enjoyed <laughs> The Mummy growing up, too. I have not seen the Brendan Fraser Mummy movies. You haven't? No. They're, the first one is definitely very fun. We all know if I watch any Mummy movie, it's gonna be the Tom Cruise one so I can make more Dark Universe jokes. That's fair, but definitely, I feel like The Mummy was the first PG-13 movie I ever watched. Mm, but and not the first PG-13 movie, because that was Indiana Jones. This movie's not PG-13. Temple of Doom. No, yeah. Temple of Doom introduced the PG-13 rating, but right. Last Crusade was the first film in the series to get PG-13. But uh, Temple of Doom is still, to this day, only rated PG. Really? Go check your DVD. Huh. Or the internet. I did movie. read that this movie was originally rated R because of the graphics in the arc scene, yes. and they had to sort of clean them up and make them Sup- less they creepy. They superimposed flames on top of, not the melting face, but the, um, the exploding, exploding one. head. Belloc's exploding head. Yeah. Which is wild to me, because now, like, NBC can go and blow up Toby in the Threat Level Midnight <laughs> episode of The Office, and nobody cares! <laughs> It was a different time, Will. A little bit of a different time, yeah. That whole last scene, I can understand that. It's so creepy. It's creepy. It's also pretty extra, but I was really into it. My favorite part is when the fire shoots through the camera and bores through someone's face. That's awesome. Because it was such a nice touch. But the whole time, during the like face-melting slash exploding scene, I was very confused. Because I was like, so does it make your face melt, or does it make your head explode? I think it depends on your your personality and what you bring to the, the arc, perhaps. As a villain, I don't know. Can you speak to it as a villain? Like, what would happen no, to you? No, what happened not, to not, you? not personally. <laughs> I'm not sure. I do know that my uh, high school freshman year theology teacher, who was a priest, used this film when we got to like the the books of the bible that deal with the ark of the covenant to be like yeah you couldn't you couldn't touch it you had to they had to have all the uh so you used Indiana Jones as a historical document yes pretty much he's like that film is very accurate like you couldn't you can't look at the presence of god which is a theme throughout the bible um or else bad things happen to you bad things including your face melting right off apparently uh, or exploding behind a superimposed curtain of fire i mean isn't that the fate of all of us (laughs) 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 so this movie it debuted at number one on june 12th 1980 one it opened to 8.3 million which is about 27 million today so nice strong opening um this is still too early for solid box office reports of the kind that we get week to week now but it's been re-released a bunch of times including less than a year after it came out it was back in theaters again and it got nominated for nine oscars including picture and director which i did not know but that's very cool yes um, as did star wars as did star wars right Jaws, close encounters they really i mean not only commercially but critically they were on fire there was period. a period here particularly with lucas and spielberg where crowd-pleasing blockbuster fair was also getting a lot of awards attention mm-hmm. which doesn't really happen these days even though we've doubled the number of best picture nominees no i can't really think of fury road would be the last fury one. road Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Which is a great movie. It did win five Oscars for art direction, as I said earlier, editing for Michael Kahn, as well as for sound, sound editing, and visual effects. Which sort of also then establishes the precedent that these movies take home the technical awards. Right. But not so much the big one. But it's great. This movie rules. I was so pleased to get to return to it after a while. It's probably been two years since I watched it. Oh, wow. How have you gone that long? I've been busy rewatching Back to the Future. <laughs> of course. But yeah, I think we should probably start digging into the actual yeah. movie. All right, yeah, Matt's on a time budget. Yeah, so Matt, since you are the guest, why don't you lead us through five points you've picked to help us understand the romance of this movie. So the romance in this movie is interesting between these two characters. 
characters, especially because they spend a good majority, not a majority of the film, but at least half of their time together, they're apart. So the five points that I have picked, just to get those out of the way, are Indy and Marion's first meeting in the bar in Nepal, uh, Indy and Marion walking through the marketplace in Cairo before they're attacked, and actually we can even include some of that action sequence too as they sort of fend off against the bad guys who are chasing them down. Indy and Marion's reunion in the tent after Indy discovers the location of the Ark in the map room. Then later on in the film, Indy and Marion on that boat that Mark forgot about, below deck, sort of their big romantic moment in the film. And then, of course, their final scene on the stairs in Washington, D.C., after Indy learns that he will not be able to study the Ark because it is being looked at by quote-unquote top men. Okay, before we get there, with the top men reference, I refuse to believe that the U.S. government wouldn't immediately begin studying it as use as a weapon. Like, the idea that the government would just, like, put this thing in a box and put it underground was very much like, hmm, this doesn't feel like Hollywood to me. Well, here's the thing. This movie is set in, what, 36? 36, yeah. So, I believe that they put it there, and then in, like, 1941, they were like, let's get that thing out again. (laughs) That's fair. Around the time they kicked the Manhattan Project into works. Yeah. When you watch this, it's kind of easy to forget that the U.S. and the Nazis aren't actually enemies because it's coming from a future lens. Whereas, if this... Oh, yeah. Yeah, so... Very good point. Yeah. This is also a pre-Schindler's List Spielberg. This is his first... Well, he did 1941. So this is his second Nazi movie. Second foray into Nazi world. Yeah. And they're, you know, disposable bad guys in this film who do lots of bad things, but it's certainly... But they could be anybody. And I think he's commented on this before. Yeah. It's not treated with the seriousness that you'll see later on in his filmography. Even in Last Crusade. Right. Yeah. But at the time, in 36, I think you were still getting New York Times op-eds like, look at how clean the streets of Berlin are, thanks to Hitler. (laughs) Well, that's the Olympic year, so everyone went to Berlin that year. Yeah, so it's definitely imposed onto the film from being made in the 80s, the idea that the Nazis are this, like, evil group. So the U.S. government probably wasn't really thinking about war at that point. Or what Hitler was doing going around the world and searching for these types of artifacts. That's a very good point, Mark. I actually never thought about that. Yeah, which also brings the U.S. government being so worried about Hitler as an interesting point, because the U.S. government was probably more worried about the whole Great Depression thing in 1936. Certainly, I think we could... If we're making up things that are not actually in the movie, we could argue that they might just be trying to lock down something that powerful before anybody else does it. And it's possible also that a pitch was made by archaeologists, like, hey, there's rumors that this thing might be found, let's this lost city or whatever and maybe there's a national security situation going on too where you kind of use the defense department to get funding for your archaeological stuff i just find it also interesting that there's only like one person in this movie that is kind of just like all right guys so we've all just decided that the ark of the covenant is this powerful weapon for real okay and that's indiana jones and everyone else just accepts face value that the ark of the covenant will be real and magic and powerful Right, as opposed to just being some sort of worship object from, right. from past times. It's I mean, Marcus Brody has accepted that theory as well by the time the movie starts. And he's the one who kind of clues us into it. He's the guy that the government went to. the power that it has and then hints at it later when he's in Indy's house. The government went to Brody, who then said, oh, we should bring Indiana Jones in. Because right. he studied under Dr. Dr. Ravenwood. Ravenwood. Which brings us to Ravenwood's daughter, which transitions Ooh. us back to the bar. Exactly. Uh, Segways. Very clever, Mark. So yeah, this is the first reunion between these two characters in 10 years. Indy studied under Marion's dad at the University of Chicago for his doctoral, postdoctoral studies. And at the time, was very close to both Ravenwoods. Got very, very close to Marion, which sort of ruined the relationship between Indy and his mentor. As a result, they haven't seen each other in 10 years at the time that they are reintroduced in Nepal in this movie, where Marion is stuck running a bar. 
And yeah. he is very close to both of them when he's in college. Like, she mentions that Professor Ravenwood thought of Indy as a son. Right. So Until the son started boning the daughter. Exactly. exactly. So we're introduced to Marion in a drinking contest. Yes. To establish that she is a cool girl. She's a tough lady. She's a tough broad. I, had, I think I, I don't have my notes in front of me, but when I watched it, I, was, I wrote, like, would have been played by Catherine Hepburn in, like, the 40s or 30s, which is just, I mean, so obviously these characters are based off of, like, Hepburn archetypes, right. and for Indy, Humphrey Bogart. What I was wondering about well. watching the drinking contest was I was like, is this the first time this kind of drinking contest had happened, or is this, like, a I, regular event no, at Marion's Bar? No, I always saw it as, like, Friday night at Marion's Bar, the whole little village comes the, to try and outdrink her. Comes and, yeah, tries to outdrink her. She always wins i absolutely see this as like what else are you, what else are they doing up there like it's probably transitory because you got sherpas and stuff like that coming through and there's some climbers who are obviously white and trying to surmount the mountains but i definitely see this as a routine thing for her yeah so you first see her i feel like that would be mr lep at this table mr lep would be the guy who just constantly wins just knocking back those shots i mean he's basically just doing shots by himself the whole time which is why he's never talking right he thinks that it's medicine <laughs> yeah first learned. he takes one of those little one of those little little plastic medicine cups you use for medicine for a kid he yep. fills it up with whiskey and just knocks it back so marion when we see her she's taking the first drink on camera which is clearly not her first drink and she looks like she's about to pass out and lose but then she rallies and then immediately after the drinking scene is perfectly sober i love watching this scene uh, oh yeah she's, yeah she's totally fine which might just be it might be an act that she does to get people to exchange i think money it is or whatever because yeah. if she is doing this every week She's got to have a pretty high tolerance. I think it's an point. act to get yeah, people more into it. Yeah, and she she outdrinks Belloc later in the movie, and one of my favorite little parts of it that gets kind of lost in the shuffle. But when they're in the tent, she uses yeah. this later the drinking game. It's a nice callback to yeah defeat the villain. It's set up brilliantly earlier on in this scene, and this really gets almost has the feeling of something that Spielberg and them that the actors improvised on set as just a cool introduction for this character. One of the strengths of this movie is visual storytelling. Yes. Mm. It does such a good job of just using as little dialogue as possible and just showing you so much information on the camera and through characters' actions. That goes for the introduction of Indy as well, which is iconic. The uh, sequence in the the Amazon is phenomenal. Yes. But also, I think for the way that um, characters like Belloc are set up as, you know, this guy who's sort of more on top of it than our hero. Is Belloc Aren't Loki the most fascinating character in this movie? Um, not sure about that. I would, I I rate Sala very highly. Oh, Sala's the and best. his obsession with Gilbert and Sullivan. Uh, but there's a lot to be said about Belloc that fits a little bit into this love triangle that kind of develops almost without Indy really knowing it between Marion, Indy, and Belloc over the course of the film. And I, I've always liked that Belloc describes himself as a shadowy reflection of Indy, which is such a villain stereotype, but it's actually played out really well because he's not a shadowy reflection of Indy. He's very much like a clean up well-polished well-groomed well-dressed sort of charming and funny guy who would be easy to root for in another circumstance except he's sided with the nazis and is kind of a dick too yeah say that on this podcast and like oh you can say whatever okay great yeah the whole thing with belloc is that he doesn't really care about the politics of this at all he's to me really fascinating as this person who is so enamored of the history that he spends his life digging around in that he really doesn't care about any living people he's happy to work with the nazis Nazis to get to what he wants. He's happy to work with the tribesmen to get with what he wants to betray anybody because he just cares about witnessing and experiencing the stuff from the past. The, the present is meaningless to him. So I assume 
based on other movies where people are like fighting over ancient artifacts that what Belloc does is go on to sell things for money. But what I find interesting is that he is so obsessed with the history, but is still in it for profit. Whereas I feel like in most movies, the other person doesn't really care about the politics of it because they're just in it to make a quick buck. But he spends the whole movie talking about history at the same time. I suspect that he is a collector. He sells stuff to finance his expeditions. He keeps the stuff that interests him and sells off other stuff in order to keep that going. Uh, But again, I'm just making stuff up. Fair read. Whereas Indy, his famous philosophy of belongs in a museum is not really developed in this film. No, it's in the third Uh, one. Yeah, it's in the third one. And actually, I think we might get a little bit into this when we talk about Indian Marion's relationship here. But this comes out in the transcript of Lucas Spielberg and Kasten planning this movie that they really saw Indy as much more of an anti-hero at first in this film yeah. than what was ultimately given us in, I think, the finished production. Well, there was a lot of talk of like making him explicitly alcoholic. Right. Um, stuff like that. Stuff like how old is Marion when she and Indy began their relationship that's sort of watered down and tampered down in the finished film. I read some because, of those conversations. They are yeah. interesting. And that's Lucas's bad idea, because he was like, well, she should be like 11 and he should be 25, which obviously crosses just about everybody's moral line across cultures and worlds. If we know one thing about George Lucas, it's that he's best when he has collaborators who rein him in. Like Spielberg and Kasten, who immediately shot that idea down and said, she's got to be older than that, pretty much. Uh, And also, I think you can't discredit what Harrison Ford and Karen Allen... Indian Marion respectively brought to these characters in sort of giving us an easier to root for hero than might have been planned initially here. For sure. And I think part of it more than anything is Karen Allen, who is terrific in this movie. Yes. And humanizes Indy to a point and gives him a, a worthy sparring, sparring partner. partner throughout the film in a way that mm-hmm. really no other, if you look at the other films, and we're looking at Raiders in isolation here, but Indy's character sort of is lacking in all of the sequels because he doesn't really have that kind of person who is able to play off him quite so well certainly kate capshaw doesn't get up to that level no and short round that's his sidekick is not doesn't quite fill the role either (laughs) for multiple reasons but i guess the closest we get is indian sean connery his dad in last crusade who's a lot of fun who is a lot of fun Mm -hmm. but not quite on the level of marion no Um, certainly not And part of that part of the reason marion is so interesting is they do have this whole backstory that's hinted at in the film without really ever being explicitly delved into yeah i Um, mean when indy walks into her bar she punches him in the face right the first thing that she does but even before that which is a touch i really liked before you actually see them on screen together indy is just a giant shadow over marion which you know is clearly like the shadow of the past hanging over their relationship is established very broadly early on. One thing I picked up rewatching this film that I, I haven't really ever seen it in this way, but I don't know if it's our current obsession with movies with having prequels or media outside of the film that can fill in some of the areas that are left more gray, where we're given more definite stories through novels or comics or short films or information on the DVD, whatever it may be. But there is so much of this story that has not been told. This is just the last half of their story that gets fulfilled in the course of this film, I think. And there's a lot of... This film is about finding resolution, I think, for Indiana and for Marion in terms of their relationship from earlier, which ended on a bad note and ends in a a more positive sense in this film. It's also implicitly kind of a way for Indy to repair his relationship with his deceased mentor, Abner Ravenwood, Marion's father, through finding the Ark, completing Abner's lifelong quest, and also patching things up with Marion, which they sort of do by the end of the film. And that's why Indy is here. He's looking for the medallion that goes on the head of the Staff of Ra, which will reveal the location of the next place that they need to go. Which Marion has, 
and obviously keeps dear enough that he's very close yeah and she doesn't give it to him right away no she first says that he has to come back the next morning she'll like look around and get it is the reason she's doing it just because she wants more money out of him or is there something more going on i think she's just kind of like you don't get to show up here after 10 years demand something from me and then leave like, you got to take some time to think about all this. I think part of it is also just weighing giving up this medallion that is clearly very important to her. She's been wearing it as a necklace, we yeah. find out. So I fig- I thought of it as more like this medallion is connected to her father, who's recently passed away. She wears it around her neck as a memorial of him, but she also needs the money. So she's trying to weigh whether to actually sell it. Because well, that's what essentially she's doing is selling it or keeping it. And it could be a mix of all of this. Right. I like what you said, Will. I mean, this is... Maybe the one thing in her life, other than... I'm talking about the bar now. The one thing in her life that she actually has some control over, and the area where she is in control versus Indy, who probably, being older than her and everything, has sort of always wielded a sort of certain amount of power over her, and now she has the power. She has the ability to tell him, you get out of my bar, and you don't come back until tomorrow, and then we'll sort something out then. So I think that might play into it, too. Yeah, so he does leave, and then he goes out, and the Nazis come in. Indeed. <laughs> as is their want. Um, which leads to a, a great big shootout that it's a great destroys little fight the bar scene. and leaves Marion homeless uh, and, and centerless, once again, and with really no choice but to follow Indy to Cairo. But the movie does a good job of keeping either one of them from being too much above the other at any point. Well, she says before they leave, I'm your, I'm your, I'm your partner. partner. Right, yeah. which... We also see in the fight where first Indy rescues her by coming in and fighting off the Nazis, but then she has to rescue him at the end of the fight. Yeah. And so there is that partnership established there. And that happens in basically every fight. In every fight scene, right. Yeah, even when in Cairo, he literally pushes her out of the fight, she runs right back she in does, and starts yeah. doing the exact same thing. And she she's very, in all the fights, she's very resourceful, um, as is he, but she really you know is not out there doing this every every week like he is but i like that she always finds objects around her whether it's you know a beer bottle or something in the bar to smash over somebody's head or a frying pan in the cairo marketplace that she manages to hold her own very well throughout all the action scenes in the film and then later on in the airplane sequence as well you kind of think forget indiana jones there's a case we made for the adventures of marion ravenwood like her experience in the past getting this kind of ingenuity and this is sort of a spielberg lucas thing too where they like the character like Luke Skywalker or uh, Chief Brody in Jaws, the sort of outsider who gets pulled into this other kind of world. Chief Brody is brought into the world of shark hunting. Uh, Luke Skywalker is brought into the struggle between the Empire and the Rebellion. Marion Ravenwood is drawn into the adventures of Indiana Jones and holds her own throughout it, just like Luke Skywalker, just like Chief Brody. One of the things I liked about Marion in particular was I noticed that she's getting in all these fights. She's choosing to enter all these fights. And I noticed she wears pants. She does. Which stood out to me in the 1930s. Marion is wearing pants, which provide her with a certain amount of agency to go through all this. And when she is captured by Belloc as a prisoner, she is put into a dress. Which she then wears for the rest of the film. And in the last time we see her in D.C., she's also wearing a dress then, too, or a skirt, I think. something. I, I, I think that's what she's wearing. Don't quote me on that. But I think there's just something interesting there about her agency versus captivity and the role that clothing plays into that. Hmm. And then Indy actually tears the bottom part of the dress. I don't know if this is symbolic of anything, but he tears the bottom part of the dress off of her to use for the fire in the... Um, in the Well of Souls. The Well yeah. of Souls, thank you. It was the temple where the Ark is. I um, thought of it more as symbolic of Karen Allen has nice legs, and it is 1981 still. Yeah. Things <laughs> not give the movie too much credit. Things can be two things. Mark's probably right. Yeah, because if you're saying that when she's wearing pants, it shows more agency, she does end the film holding Indiana's arm... 
in a dress. Well, canonically, then she gives birth to Shia LaBeouf. So <laughs> <laughs> after Shia LaBeouf is conceived on the boat between Cairo and and Greece, that's right. The the, uh, the the mysterious island of the Mediterranean. Yeah. So I think that she is a very strong, interesting person at the beginning, but she probably does fall into the trap that is marriage. Well, not marriage, but you know, right? Because they don't get married Dumb. again. Bringing in canon yeah. from the fourth movie. <laughs> We're jumping ahead to the final scene here, but I don't know if I ever... And again, we have the benefit of not seeing this film right in 1981. We know what came after it, which is that Marion is out of his life in the next... Well, Last Crusade is technically the, the first movie that comes after Raiders. But she doesn't reappear until Crystal Skull when we know that this relationship didn't work out based on what they, they go through in that film. But I never... You know, they're, they're kind of... It's an odd final scene because it's not... It doesn't it doesn't have a conventional happy ending no. for a summer blockbuster. And Indy doesn't get what he wants and i don't know if if their relationship is fully repaired or if or if we're meant to see the ending of him and her sort of sullenly walking away from the government building in dc as being a happy ending for them that leads to you know marriage and bliss and all this i don't know that we are there is a sense of disappointment in it but then on to the next adventure come back next saturday pay your nickel and right it just ends in we're going to the temple of doom right yeah (laughs) that's a movie why don't we uh why don't we move on Point number two, Matt. I think we've covered the bar. We sort of, Yeah, we have covered the bar well. Um, India Marion in the Marketplace is really kind of an extension. Of, it's almost like this is their first chance, just the two of them, to sort of talk to each other and relax walking through the Marketplace in Cairo before they get attacked again. She asks they, him why he hasn't settled down and had a family like Sala. They sort of conversation from last time. Yes, comparison to his good friend Sala. Sala is the best. Sala is amazing. Played by John Rhys-Davies, who, according to one story I read, once pooped in costume during a take. <laughs> This is true. Indiana Jones is hard because it came out before the internet existed, so there aren't, like, lots of interviews from the time online. And because it's such a beloved movie, there are a lot of articles, but they're all the same article, like, 11 things you didn't know about Indiana Jones. And they're all like, it's the same composer as Star Wars. But the one thing I found that I thought was incredible was they were talking about shooting the movie right. in Tunisia and how incredibly, incredibly hot it was and how basically nobody had control over their body because it was so hot. Yeah. And one time they were doing a take and John Reese davis just pooped his pants. <laughs> This has been Poop Talk. Oh, God. I will say, the poop. in terms of different talks we have, I don't think there is any real montages. Just the transitions with the airplane. Yeah, I feel like those don't really count. They're not really montages. Very pulpy, red line. They're great, though. I love them. That just tells us what we need to know. We don't need to know what happened on these trips. We just need to know they got from point A to point B. Not as good of a use of that map trope as the Emperor's New Groove, which perfected that trope. (laughs) But it's being in dialogue with this film. What if David Spade (laughs) were Indiana Jones? thought. What if Indiana Jones just crashed Cusco's kingdom and tried to steal an object of worship? I feel really awkward in the first scene because the whole point of Indiana Jones is, as it's developed is like, it belongs in a museum. But if the idol, which is clearly still being actively worshipped, it doesn't belong in a museum... It belongs to the people actively worshipping the idol. Yeah, it was the 1930s. It was a different time. Yeah. The best commentary on Indiana Jones is still the McSweeney's essay of back from another globetrotting mission. Dr. Indiana Jones checks his mail to learn his request for tenure has once again been denied. I love that. Thank <laughs> I'll you post that on the social me. media so yeah, you can read amazing. it. So we're in the marketplace in Cairo. Yes. Um, I think the idea here is, and it kind of feeds into the conclusion too, the idea that Indy isn't one for settling down with, with any one person. He's in love with the job. He's in his... love with the job. But I mean, also his job makes it almost impossible for that to happen because he does sort of lead a double life from 
kind of tweety, almost nerdy. But really glasses, hot. But really glasses hot. Glasses sexy, Really sexy Indiana Jones in those glasses. Yeah, and his class is like 70% girls. Uh, we see the one girl at the beginning who's got love you written on her eyelids. 100% me. That is the move. <laughs> that is the mood and the move. When they remake the film, inevitably, we'll, we'll submit your name for casting. Yeah, um, I would love to be an extra that just plays... A student. And this is another... The weirdest thing I know... Sorry to interrupt, Matt. No, go ahead. The weirdest thing about that college is it has bells. It is. The class ends when a bell rings. Yeah. There's still bo- like bells. School. There's bells in colleges in China still. Really? Yeah, so they still exist. Curious. It's one of the... This, this is just an interesting anecdote, but it, it's one of those areas with, with the college... Uh, students being like in love with their professor that sort of was meant to go down a sleazy route again with Indy where it was written when Marcus Brody comes to his house later and tells him that he's got the job to go track down the Ark. One of the co-eds was supposed to be like there with Indy and leaving at the time sort of with the implication that he slept with his students and whether that was edited out or someone came or casted and Spielberg decided they weren't going to write that idea it was very much meant to be part of his character and is sort of lost and he almost seems to me aloof when he's in the classroom and the girls are sort of he's completely thrown off by the whole situation uh, instead of being instead of being this playboy situation he's somebody who at least when he's in the classroom he just doesn't know how to handle it I think if we really wanted to analyze the true romance of this movie we would be discussing Indiana Jones in archaeology. Because his true number one love is archaeology. It's the job. Absolutely. So Indy and Marion get attacked. They do get attacked. And as we said earlier, Marion manages to, to hold her own pretty well. But she does get kidnapped about halfway through by heading in a basket. Because they get betrayed by the Nazi monkey. The evil Nazi monkey. This monkey works for Nazis. It and gives a Nazi salute. How to do sig- the Sig Heil salute. Yeah, which totally went over my head the first time I saw the film. I don't think I noticed it until this time. It's awesome. But um, don't worry. Even the monkey gets Hollywood justice. He does. Yeah. <laughs> it gets poisoned. <laughs> yeah, it eats poison pig. Bad dates. I think one of my favorite moments of the fight scene is when she's getting carried away in the basket. She just yells, you can't do this to me. I'm an American, which very quintessential American move. It's delightful. Even today, (laughs) in the 1930s, though, it's perfect. Such a great line. She tries everything she can to, to get out of there. You can't, you can't put that past her. So she's kidnapped. She's put in a truck. Truck blows up. Indiana thinks she died. Yeah, and Indy feels really bad about it. He gets it. real drunk. Yeah, he yeah. does. So th- there's Which your is fair. vestiges of his alcoholism in this film. But he really, he goes down a dark spiral for a short amount of time before his first love, archaeology, comes back into the picture. Boy, does it. As the Iman um, translates the headpiece to the Staff of Rome. And this is really him. what gets him back into it, is that they translate the headpiece from the Staff of Ra, which tells them where to find Tannis. God knows otherwise, Sala is not trying very hard to get Indy out of his his little depression spiral I, by saying, life goes on, Indy. There's yeah. the proof. After Marion is presumably blown to bits in a Cairo street. I mean, Sala is it, not wrong. It also, it should be pointed out that Indiana Jones shoots the driver, which causes the truck to fall over and blow up. Right, so, so there's there some guilt there. So there is an element of, like, personal responsibility, too. Personal guilt. For yeah. Sure, for sure. So they find out how to, how to get to Tannis, how to find the map to the Ark of the Covenant. This is like a nice little like series. It's very almost video gamey series of quests here. You got to get the medallion. You got to translate with the medallion. You got to go to this place to get the map. Then you got to. I mean, it is a video game. It's called Uncharted, which is a series of games that is essentially just Indiana Jones. I don't play video games. Yeah. But 
they get to the, the dig site at Tannis, which is huge. It's actually a, a very impressive like production set. Piece. Yeah, it looks awesome. And then we get to what's actually my favorite scene in the film. It has nothing to do with the, the romance whatsoever, but I'll, I'll throw in a mention of it here. Almost solely because of John Williams' score, the scene in the map room where Indy uses the headpiece to track down the location. The music there is awesome. Very, it just feels, it elevates the film where this, I think if you're not on board with the quest or with the, the mythology behind the Ark of the Covenant at that point, you definitely are by the time the scene is done. And Harrison Ford, he sort of like wells up watching it. You can tell how much this quest means to him, I think on a personal level with Carol on the work of his deceased mentor, Abner, but also just his love of archaeology that we've sort of been talking about here There was, about three and a half years ago, Steven Soderbergh, um, another excellent director named Steven, had a post on his personal blog. This is when Steven Soderbergh was allegedly retired forever from film, (laughs) Uh, but he was maintaining his personal blog. And he had this post where he was talking about the brilliance of the filmmaking in Indiana Jones. And so he posted, it's not a cutting because he didn't change the cut, but a version of Raiders of the Lost Ark to his blog, which was in black and white and had all the dialogue removed. So it's basically just a black and white film with just the score. Mm. And it's incredible to watch that and to see scenes like that and how much the storytelling works, even without a single word of dialogue. Because you get those emotions from the performance, you get John Williams' score, and you get the incredible design of the movie. Yeah. And once they're out of there, Indy stumbles upon, because he's hiding from the Nazis, Marion tied up in a, in a tent uh, in this giant dig site. And... Which is our third point. Uh, so they sort of catch up with each other very quickly, but Indy is all prepared to cut her loose uh, from where she's tied up until he realizes that if he does so, he risks being exposed himself because her not being there is the only way to tip Belloc and the Nazis off that Indy has infiltrated this camp to rescue her. And he needs more time to find the exact location of the Ark because what they find out is that Belloc's dig site was wrong. They needed to go somewhere else. So he has to leave Marion, which she is not pleased about. Yeah, in this scene, when they first meet up, they kiss right after he pulls the handkerchief out of her mouth and i personally don't find this justified at all it's interesting they so this is uh, i think it's more of a like an oh my god kind of situation you again yay um because not a nazi right um never really bothered me but it is worth pointing out there was an earlier scene of them kissing in the bar uh that was cut from the film so for some reason this becomes their first kiss presumably in 10 years and they they didn't resolve anything in the market like they were having some witty banter but it wasn't like but the, they had solved 10 years of resentment. The tone is lighter at that point. Definitely. Yeah. And it gets lighter once they get to Cairo. And it, it is kind of a weird transition because we're not really given any reason for it being that way. It's just sort of, well... It's the next episode. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the like lead, two leading characters of a summer blockbuster. So... A very efficient summer blockbuster right. that presumably cuts some of this stuff out. Well, um, right, there are so, no Infinity Stone scenes. No. <laughs> they got rid of all of those. <laughs> and they, um, you know, it, it, there is an element, I guess, of the two, of her really specifically rescuing him in the fight and in the bar, too, is like, okay, some of our deaths maybe have been settled with each other now. At the very least, we don't hate each other to the point where we'll let the other one die. But they do seem to have started to patch things up by the time they're yeah. in Cairo. I don't disagree that they have started to become more light with each other, but I think there's a big jump between becoming more lighthearted in your discussions and kissing. Absolutely, yeah. But so he decides to leave her so that he can keep on looking around, finding the Well of Souls. Which is kind of crappy, I think, cheating on, for him to do. Cheating on her with his true love. Archaeology. Archaeology. <laughs> right. Meanwhile, Belloc comes in, has her put on the dress. That's when they're drinking together. Treats her like a lady. It uh, reminded me of the scene in Pirates of the Caribbean where Jeffrey Rush 100%. has Keira Knightley put on the dress. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. scene is definitely 
first thing they I thought of. Definitely modeled after this. That scene's probably that, creepier. That scene is really good, though. It is. Yeah. Also, a I'm fantastic. A big, Curse of the Black Pearl is a great movie. Great modern blockbuster. Well, is it? Mo- it's 15 years old. 2004? 2003. 2003. Great modern blockbuster, regardless. Yeah, I think that by putting her in the dress, I don't know if we'll talk about this at the end. I don't really buy Indiana and Marion as much, but I will say Indiana is the only one that treats her like a person and not an object. Yes. Which Belloc definitely Which does. Belloc, Belloc treats everything is, like an option. Right. The only person that Belloc does not treat as an object is Indiana Jones, who he has a lot of respect for. Mm. True love? Perhaps? No. <laughs> I would watch that. But yeah, no, there's definitely an element of that with like, we are, you know... We are colleagues, and I. This is why I respect you. Belloc seems you. sees it as a game between the two of them. Absolutely, and he he's gonna win the game. Mm-hmm. But that's what it is. They're like sportsmen, which is what makes him a very underrated but interesting villain to watch. And also, he's played very well by Paul Freeman in a very charming performance. It's 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 the nineteen eighty one Christoph Waltz performance. Yeah, it's easy to forget that he is a villain that we're supposed to hate at times. But you do bring up a good point about the fact that he's sort of trying to keep Marion entrapped for himself, Mark, uh, specifically by putting her in the dress yeah. which he, just he, a practical matter has to limit her ability to run away into the desert versus right. the pants she was wearing right. earlier but so that's when they have their drinking game and marion wins because she can hold her alcohol much better and so then she is able to escape thanks to that well she tries to she escape. tries to escape and then the creepy nazi right. is yes. right behind her yes. oh yes the only thing that can defeat toby jones but not toby jones but not yes <laughs> You're recasting this movie uh, as we sit here for the the 2018 remake. I don't hate my cast. No, it's pretty except good that story. David Spade is Indiana Jones. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, I forgot about that part. So yeah, because that's the thing is, every time she's doing good, that creepy Nazi shows up. Right, right. because Indy is down getting the map to find the Ark when Toby Jones finds. Marion, and then he goes and steals the rope that will get Indy out of the Well of Souls, but then throws Marion down into there, which is how they reunite. Right. Marion gets treated like such shit in this movie. Yeah, they just throw her into the pit. Um, Yeah. Which Belloc is very disturbed about. Full credit to him. He seems to have developed some weird actual attraction for her at this point. It's a desire for possession, not attraction. And specifically possession that he perceives to be Indy's. Right. It's part of the game. That's very clever. Yeah. I'm learning so much about... See, I've seen this film 50,000 times. Uh, there's still new ways to view it. But they get... Spoiler, they get out they of the Well of Souls. They get out. After a long series of events, they steal the Ark, and they end up on a boat. Point number four. And this is really the first time that the audience and these two characters have had a breather in the film at this point, at least since the, the when they were walking through the Cairo marketplace and sort of chatting breezily. But this is their chance to sort of settle down, and settle down they do. Oh, yeah. Uh, this is the big romantic climax of the film, kind of, right. between the For two sure. characters. Indy is totally worn out by the chase through the desert after the arc, and Marion sort of tries to take care of him a little bit, but he kind of just wants to sleep. And then they share their big second romantic kiss. Well, actually, the first one that feels like a proper romantic. The other one, I think, really is more of a like, oh, look, it's you. You're alive. Right. Mm -hmm. I still don't like... I'm not saying it's necessarily plausible, but I'm right. saying that's no, the attitude mark. They're not, the it's attitude. not a we're-so-in-love yeah. kiss. It's very quick yeah. and, and over very fast, and it's not. It's certainly not like this scene. Yeah. Right. And in this scene, I still was kind of... I still, you know, as I said, I'm not 100% on board, and I was watching, and I was just like, I wonder if she actually would sleep with him. And then I remembered, oh, wait, even if I hated him, he's still really hot. <laughs> he's really hot. <laughs> so, like, then I was just like, Especially, at that yeah. point, his shirt's, like, half off anyway. Like, yeah. You're already there. I know. I was just like, I mean, even if I was mad at Indiana Jones, if he put the glasses on, 
I probably would just be like, all right. So, you know, this will weigh into the ratings at the end. <laughs> You're saying it'll be more plausible because it's Indiana Jones? Exactly. Anyway, they have sex. Shia LaBeouf is conceived. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Incredibly. He <laughs> plays up- in Crystal Skull, which is an underrated movie. Shia LaBeouf plays with a switchblade through the whole movie, and he goes by mutt. <laughs> <laughs> it was the 50s. Because he, he doesn't like, know what he is. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. This is really sad, but I just realized that he also has a name nickname that is a dog. That's the point. oh yeah yeah. It's worth pointing out that when that when the idea was first floated that Indy would have a child, I think in the early drafts of what what became Crystal Skull, it was a daughter. So Indiana mm. Jones was really a thing at <laughs> one point over that. that they decided because at that time Spielberg was obsessed with casting and promoting the career of Shia LaBeouf it would become a son. I mean, weren't we all obsessed with promoting the career of Shia LaBeouf? Bad decision. Post holes, he could just do anything he wanted to do. But yeah, so Mark, I'm sensing a little bit of doubt that the relationship has has built up to this point for you in this scene where they do, all seems forgiven by the end of the film and they sleep together and end up on each other's arm. I think if they like somehow ran into each other or something or if Indy just like went to Nepal to visit Abner casually and discovered he was dead, that they probably wouldn't wind up in this situation. I think it's the life or death circumstances and the kind of adrenaline that comes with that yeah. that throws it there i'm not saying it's it's not a 10 but i'm right. saying i think that plays a factor in it i think hollywood just uses the life or death as aphrodisiac to justify some really flimsy romance you're probably right i have not been in a real life or death situation so i cannot <laughs> comment also true but it's just you know that is a very convenient plot device for sure it is and it's overused yeah, especially in summer blockbusters, when you have two hours to produce this kind of a relationship, it you gotta can, fit your set pieces in. It can yeah. be tough, but to this film's credit, Marion is, with the exception of the uh, desert chase on the truck, part of most of the big action set pieces of this film in a very visible and important way. That includes the fight with the plane, uh, the escape from the Well of the Souls, the fight in the Cairo marketplace, and the gunfight in her bar. So. I think that, because we've talked about, like, the dialogue scenes between these characters and sort of skipped over the big action scenes that are really the focal point of the film, I think that you can't discount the way the two characters are used and play off of each other in those scenes as well, where maybe they're not talking to each other, but they're saving each other's lives, where Indy's looking out for her and chasing through the streets trying to, to save her from the Nazis. As she's working to save him in the airplane fight. As he is... Totally mismatched against this giant German bodybuilder. As who... Harrison Ford's leg gets run over by a plane. <laughs> that happened in real life. Oh, wait. It happened in this movie. In this film. Yeah. The man should yeah. stay away from planes for his for his life, yet he is a licensed pilot for some reason. Um, I think it's one of those things like aggressively face your fear. Like, if, <laughs> if you are afraid of snakes, go into the Well of Souls and hang out with the snakes down there. Yeah. If you are constantly attacked yeah, by did, planes. That didn't seem to do him any good. Show a plane whose boss. <laughs> right. Dominate the plane. <laughs> Can we talk about that German soldier, though? Like, he sees this guy trying to steal a plane from his camp where he's a soldier, and his thought is just like, ah, yes, time for a bout of fisticuffs. <laughs> it would have worked. And it he, almost worked. It all, I mean, the thing, yeah, it does almost work. He is clearly good at the fisticuffs. But I, I love this guy coming oh, out really and like just it, saying, yeah. he's, you know, he's just gone to the bathroom. He's like, might as well beat this dude up now. Like, it's the kind of guy that only the... exists in a movie made in the 80s. Absolutely. Yeah. But there's one in every movie made in the 80s. Yeah. It, it's really funny, and you know everything you need to know about him by the fact that he sees Indy trying to climb on top of this plane really poorly and just laughs at him and comes yeah. out of him and starts punching him. It's, it's awesome. Great. It's but no, great. he doesn't start punching him. He 
waits for Indy to get. You're right. It's He's a, a sportsman. Cup. It's yeah. I think he is like some German German boxer. He got or drafted. Something. Yeah, who was drafted as a Nazi. But um, there's no war. Let's remember. He's preparing for the Anschluss. Right. He decided there was a better way to use his yeah. talents in the German army. Yeah. Uh, and and his sole job is to guard this plane from being. Maybe he's on the German version of a USO tour and he's in Cairo (laughs) to do a boxing match. And he just saw this and thought he could do something for the country. This top secret German mission to recover <laughs> yeah. the Ark of the Covenant. Everyone needs a USO tour. This is true. This is true. But anyway, to get back to the main point, although this is an amazing sequence uh, that is done very well, I think you can't discount the importance of the action scenes because they contribute not only to his character and not only to her character, but to their characters both coming together at the end of the film. Even if we can concede the point that the, the film does rely upon the pressure cooker of this mission bringing them together. But it does do what a good action movie should do which is to build character and to build relationships through action rather than just saying having people sit down and talk all the time which i love a good movie where people sit down and talk well but a movie based around action like this one should also be building character that way and And, building relationships and they have so much backstory not only in the sense that you know they had a romantic relationship before this film that we don't even know about until disney and lucasfilm inevitably cast alden ehrenreich in the indiana jones prequel coming to cinemas near you we should actually mention that we did not plan it this way we were just doing it because matt was in town but this episode is accidentally a tie-in because as this episode comes out on monday thursday night is the release of lawrence kasdan's next movie solo a star wars story which Starting. he wrote with his son. Right, which will be a prequel to a Harrison Ford joking about it, to a Harrison Ford movie, yeah. But there is so much that this film this film serves as the resolution of conflicts in these characters' lives that have been going on for 10 years and longer at this point. It's the resolution of the quest for the Ark, of Abner's quest for the Ark carried out by his protege, of the Indian-Marian relationship, even if in the overall context of the series it just ends up being sort of a stopping off point for these two characters before they get further resolution in Crystal Skull but that doesn't diminish this movie not at all Uh, and and certainly of all the Indiana Jones films this films this one stands up the best as just a a solo endeavor if you can only watch one this is the one to watch it doesn't need the other films in any way shape or form absolutely to be understood or appreciated. Um, in fact, sometimes those films cheapen this film. So they get to the Ark. They wind up on this island where the Nazis try to open the Ark to use it, and their faces melt, and the movie is no longer rated R. And that takes us to our last point, right, Matt? Yes. Uh, Indy and Marion both come back to Washington, D.C. where A lovely the, city. Yes, we're big fans. The Ark is taken by the government and shuttered up in a warehouse somewhere, never to be seen again. And Which is actually a really nice scene where there, it is just put in that crate and we see yeah. the massive size of this warehouse and who knows what else is in those boxes. Maybe it's the emergency grain supply. Maybe it's a bunch of other ARC-level objects. It is a huge downer ending, kind of, to me. And it also just makes you want to come back and revisit this world and see, like you said, what other cool things are there that some people have, that Indiana Jones has uncovered and that have ended up not in his possession because they're too dangerous or whatever. You realize there's some kind of like Indiana Jones version of S.H.I.E.L.D. that is keeping all these things in place and tracking them down. Isn't that essentially the TV show Warehouse 13? I've never watched it. I've not seen I've it. seen like two commercials for it, but I think that might be the plot. I may have thought that sure. that was the pawn shop game show where you have to guess what the uh not not pawn shop uh, where you have to guess the worth of the like the price is right but for a storage locker oh storage wars yeah where you bid without knowing what's inside the storage unit yeah 
a show I also never watched, but no, I've, I've never seen, seen commercials it. for. So anyway, fifth point. Yeah, fifth point. Uh, Indy's sort of a, a downer. Uh, he's not feeling too good about the fact that he won't get to look at the arc any further. Uh, and Marion is the one who tries to, unsuccessfully actually, pick up his spirits at the end. He says, as, as they're walking down the stairs, bureaucratic fools, they don't know what they've got there. And she says, well, I know what I've got here. Which sort of implies that she does have real feelings for him and does see them as a couple now at this point. So yeah. Mark, maybe you're more right about this than I would have initially expected that this is she she sees this going forward at this right. point he and, does not I and that's a good point I think to talk about what do we think do we find this romance believable I think in the context of this film so this is this on the scale of one to ten being um, believable? sure yeah if you want yeah. to put it on your 10 point scale 10 is the most believable one is I not cer- at all believable I certainly think it's very believable I would give it an eight or nine maybe wow. not a ten just because wow. it's well, how, what's your average normally? I was thinking it's at well, while you were sleeping levels. Oh, I thought it was much better than that. But, uh, oh wait, we gave that a three. Yeah, while you were sleeping is a three. I forgot how low we ranked She lies one. about being his fiance in that movie. <laughs> That's true. Um, I was thinking a five. I was gonna put it at like, uh, probably like a seven. Alright, so I'll go eight. I'll lowball it. On okay. Uh, I do agree that some things seem a little bit rushed. But I think the last scene signals to us that this doesn't maybe tend toward believability but we see where indy's head with it is maybe and to him maybe it is another like one night kind of stand with her that he doesn't see this going much further that's certainly how the series wrapped it up with crystal skull where we learned that it didn't work out between the two of them but i don't think we're meant to see it at the end as being in the context of what we see in the film i think that the points that we all hit all work individually very well but i think the long-term prospects for it and i think the film hints at this are not very good uh, on the note that we end up on but i don't think the movie sets it up as any more a secure relationship than say like a james bond movie that ends with him still with a woman like when we watched from russia with love they're still in the boat together and i don't think this movie presents indian marion as being any more of a like locked in relationship than in that movie yeah i don't think so either but i don't think we rated from russia with love very highly either (laughs) fair (laughs) and on the scale of connery movies that's actually one of the better built-up relationships between bond and a bond girl and it's noteworthy that they base so much of this character off of james bond but then kind of tried to undermine the james bond as hero archetype that exists well spielberg has wanted to direct a bond movie for ages right but they won't let american directors do it so this was his sort of stopgap uh his, his sort of well if i can't do that i'll do george's project instead because george lucas tried to sell it to him as, as this james is bond. exactly like james bond and if you read the transcript between the three of them spielberg is always trying to work in james bond type characteristics like oh he's a great indiana jones is a great gambler and stuff like that stuff that never comes out in the films whatsoever but this film doesn't end like a james bond film they're not in bed together they're sort of kind of moping around dc walking down the stairs he's sullen as could be and i think she sort of has maybe a hint in her face of of recognition that this isn't as stable of a relationship as maybe she hopes that it can be walking away from their adventure in the desert together Well, well that's very interesting i I think so. Do you think that Indy and Marion are dateable? Um, no. I probably... Um, Indy, Indy's lifestyle... Are we talking about them individually? Or as, yeah, as it, like, would or, you date Indiana Jones if, or would you date Marion? Um, I don't think any, but any sane person would date the Indiana Jones we see in this film. He's caught up in his lifestyle, and like we said, that's his number one he love. He only loves archaeology. He's married to his job. Um, Marion has a lot of positive attributes. She does. She yeah. does. 
But she also seems to be an alcoholic. Yes, definitely an alcoholic. <laughs> Which is a big minus. <laughs> if Marion went to some meetings, I could see dating her. I don't think these two probably have some trauma, perhaps, from For their sure. experiences. Not only together personally, but also just this yeah. whole adventure has a lot of really They watch gross... some people die. Yes. And Mary I mean Marion winds up in that antechamber of the Well of the Souls with all the dead, creepy people with the snakes coming out of their mouths. It's just terrifying still, even to me. I think it's uh, a creepy it, shot. It I is. think in terms of numbers, Marion killed more people than Indiana Jones too. Well, she has, she the, has machine the machine gun. gun. Yeah. yeah. So she was just mowing them down. Yeah. So like clearly they've both been messed up a little bit. Okay. Indy stumbles on successes as a hero. The person who steals the idol from him, Alfred Molina in the uh, right, Alfred Molina. in the temple in the beginning happens to get killed because he forgets how the traps work in the temple. The the big boxer guy who who comes at him at the flying wing airplane gets chopped up because the timing, you know, he didn't know where he was standing at the time. Indy purposefully doesn't kill too, too many people in the film. Marion, on the other hand, does. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she shoots a guy in cold blood in the bar. In the bar, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so if, if you did have to date one person in this movie, who would it be? Unequivocally, Sala. I was going to say, <laughs> it's totally Sala. Sala is a, has a stable family life at home, lots of kids. He can poop his pants and just hold it together. <laughs> <laughs> For the cameras. He is there to comfort Indy, albeit poorly, when he needs it. He enjoys the finer things in life, like a good Gilbert and Sullivan opera. He is quick with a joke, has a great sense of humor, gives big bear hugs. What's not to like about Sala? Are you sure you're not already dating Sala? <laughs> no, I just had to think about this Who among us is not long. dating Sala in their heart? <laughs> Mark, well, do you have another answer, or are you also on the Sala train? Um, I was thinking maybe the boat captain. He's very trustworthy. Do you mean the boat captain or Indy's airplane pilot from the first sequence? No, I think he means the boat captain. No, the boat captain. The oh. one who doesn't actually betray them. Like, they set him up, I feel, as I was thinking, I was honestly worried, I couldn't remember the scene, I was just like, oh no, a suave black man, just like Lando Calrissian, he's gonna turn on them, and I was just like, oh wait, no, he's pretty cool. No, he does a good job of protecting them, actually. Yeah. And he tries his hardest, he's not successful, but... He's not successful, but he gives it a solid effort, he, he really seems does. really cool. He's got a boat, so he's got some income coming in. Uh, Sala has a a steady job, too. So, as a digger. (laughs) Yeah. The the best digger in Cairo. (laughs) Seems really well off for someone whose job is digger. I think he's like a contractor. I think, like, lots of diggers work for him. Yeah. And he is, like, the head digger. Oh, clearly. But it's still just funny that it's like, you're the best digger in Cairo. See, my first thought when you said the pilot was the uh, pilot from the opening sequence when Indy runs out and gets on a plane running away from the tribesman. And there's this dude who walks straight out of every other 80s movie who is just wearing his baseball hat flies the plane and he's got a pet snake oh, yeah. like i would watch a whole movie about that guy jock jock the pilot this is such a weird introduction to his fear of snakes like he's just left a it's such a weird plot point temple in the jungle and then the way you get to see the first snake is because of a guy named Jock has a pet snake. <laughs> and then he goes, I hate snakes. I was just like, I totally forgot this was the introduction to his fear. The that setup character is magnificent. The setup is weak. Like, a guy who brought his pet snake on this mission with him. And, like, not a garter snake. This is a constrictor. But but the idea of introducing your hero by having him go through all these challenges and emerge relatively unscathed from it and without, you know, breaking a sweat almost until 
he just fails miserably at everything, and the whole temple falls apart. And then he runs away from the Hivitos, the, the tribe of native uh, people that, are, that chase him down. And then he breaks down in the plane because he's afraid of snakes. It's, it sets him up really well as not being this suave, ultra-composed James Bond type that Spielberg might initially have wanted him to be. Yeah. But let's not forget that this guy named Jock owns a pet snake. Which is a boa constrictor. It's such a good character. Um, Wait, what's yours, Will? I don't know. Oh, I'm totally Sala. It's 100% Sala. You know, we could probably talk about this movie for another hour, but that two-hour slot is locked in for Back to the Future. So uh, (laughs) we should probably start to wrap things up a bit. Next week, we'll be returning to hashtag Claire's Corner for something different for us. We're going to do a 2003 Bollywood romance called Call Ho Na Ho. Yes, after a movie that everyone has seen, we're really trying to drive our listener numbers down again (laughs) by doing something that we can barely remember the name of. Yeah, I definitely had to look it up again. I'm looking forward to it, though. I have I not am, seen much I, Bollywood. I've heard it's good from Claire, who will be the guest. Yes. Um, so until then, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Heart of Podness, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at heartofpodness at gmail.com. Make sure you rate, review, and subscribe, of course. That helps a lot of other people to find the show. And again, tell us your story about sharing the podcast with someone you know by tweeting at us with the hashtag, hashtag podcast summer. So last question for all of us, what's the best piece of dating advice you got from this movie matt <laughs> uh marion hiding the knife underneath her napkin at the dinner table with belloc uh when your date seems creepy have an exit plan mm, that that is good dating advice <laughs> well always make the monkey try the dates first Ooh, Ooh. i like that yeah, especially if it's a nazi monkey that works on two levels oh so deep will um mine is have the good looks of harrison ford and the glasses and the glasses to boot got that one locked down okay until next time i'm gay and i'm a ginger which means between the two of us we know everything there is to know about romance bye Bye. Bye.